Welcome back to another episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. Joining me today is Dr. Michael Anardi. Dr. Anardi is my go-to for everything relating to the Liz Frank joint. And that's what we're going to be discussing today is ligamentous Liz Frank injuries, how they occur, what you see on examination and evaluation, what you should do about them, how they show up on imaging. Uh, we talk about a variety of other rehabilitation considerations, surgical management, and so much more. So there's a lot of information packed into this one. This is a field where I really see Dr. Nardi as a expert, and I highly recommend you seek him out if you're struggling with one of these injuries yourself. He has a wealth of knowledge, and I've seen great results from him in the past. Highly recommend him. This episode and every episode in season five is brought to you by ISOFIT, my go-to for all things isometric strength training. For more on that, check out the description below. Enjoy. Dr. Anardi, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to work with you today. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So for people who might not be familiar with you or maybe they haven't you know, seen what you do up there at Penn State Hershey, would you mind filling them in a little bit about who you are and all the amazing things that you do? I kind of started my career out uh, down um, Baltimore, uh, went to Hopkins for undergraduate. Uh, I played sports there, played football, which kind of explains a little bit of my background and interest in you know, foot and ankle sports injuries. And I did my medical school uh, and um, undergraduate medical training at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia and then stuck around there for five more years at the Rothman Institute. And then came back to Baltimore uh, at MedStar Union Memorial Hospital, uh, which services foot and ankle for uh, Baltimore and Hopkins rotates there and stuff. And and I did fellowship there and then uh, took a job uh, here at Hershey at Penn State. Uh, so I've kind of traveled a triangular area in the Northeast here for the last 20, 21 years, 22 years or whatever it's been. So, um, And then uh, when I got to Penn State, I do... Um, so a lot of foot and ankle reconstruction, I take level one trauma call and we take care of quite a few different athletes, everyone ranging from our Hershey Bears, who uh, is a minor league hockey team, and they have a bunch of flex players with the Capitals. So some very high level athletes and our division one athletes at State College, all the way down to high school athletes. And there's a bunch of division uh, three colleges in the area. We service Lebanon Valley College, Elizabethtown. Um, and messiah and a couple others so that's kind of how i got passionate i guess about foot and ankle sports injuries and then we have a really nice biomechanics lab and you know penn state up guys up at state college are you know famous for their engineering program and over the years i've been able to collaborate with them nicely to to kind of put some research together uh to help answer clinical questions uh regarding some of the difficult injuries we we see in treated orthopedic surgeons I love that background. And, you know, you and I have had the pleasure of kind of a few mutual acquaintances or page, patients at this point, I'll say. And one of them actually just texted me and tell you she said hello and her foot feels great ever since you did her lace frank surgery. And when when we when we think about complex foot and ankle injuries, I think the Liz Frank is one of the first ones to come to mind for me. It's often missed on exam or misdiagnosed, and it's one of those things where I feel like there's a lot of different surgical considerations, but it's really matching the right surgical approach for the right patient at the right time. When it comes to the Liz Frank, what kind of uh, for people who aren't familiar with it, what kind of things do you typically see leading to that injury, and how would you go about diagnosing that? Yeah, so you know, Liz Frank injuries. We'll go. We'll start with a little history uh, first, because I think it's relevant. You know, the the uh, Liz Frank joints uh, and Liz Frank injuries were kind of classically described by a, a field surgeon uh, who was in Napoleon's army in the early 1800s. And the injury mechanism then was uh, officer on a horse, where the horse was either startled in battle or they were shot off the horse, and and the foot would get caught in the stirrup. And the rider would then fall, but the foot would be caught. So it was this kind of pronation, abduction, plantar flexion injury. And it would be this very violent dislocation. You know, and unfortunately, the treatment then in the 1800s was an amputation. So I, I see a lot of athletes, you know, seen in the ER, urgent clinics that told they have a Liz Frank and they get on Google and they Google and they immediately read these horrific things. And a lot, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, am I going to lose my foot from this injury? But that's one end of the spectrum. And we still, 
you know, I, I have a lecture I've given on list ranks before where I, I have the old slide from, you know, 1800s Napoleon's army and, and list Frank and, and a, and a rider and a horse. And then I, I put a, a car crash right underneath that. So, so it's still horsepower and still horse related injuries, just much faster. And we see, especially at our level one center, these very violent traumatic injuries from the floorboard as you decelerate that lead to very violent dislocation, fracture injury patterns in the midfoot at the Liz Frank joints uh, that can be open, uh, crushed. And, and then that's one end of the spectrum and that hasn't changed. And, th and those patients are a very real risk for amputation and, and arterial injury and all, and all these horrible soft tissue things, nerve injuries. And then you look at the other end of the spectrum, which is this very subtle, often missed, as you just said, uh, ligamentous injury. Uh, and, and the Liz Frank joints, if you were to pull up a Google image, look very much like a, an arch or, uh, you know, we're in central Pennsylvania where I practice and there's a lot of farms and the old, old way, uh, Masons would construct a doorway would be with this keystone and we're in the keystone state, right? And the second metatarsal bone and the ligament supporting it functions very much like a keystone. These joints don't move a ton, but they do articulate these ligaments get disrupted and, and. It's often diagnosed this as, as a midfoot sprain. And I, I tell our resident doctors that there is no such thing as a midfoot sprain. That's not entirely true. But if you if you get into that mindset, there is no midfoot sprain, you, you, you it'll be almost impossible to miss these injuries. And, and when you miss these injuries, the results are catastrophic. The foot can collapse. They go into early arthritis, miss time from work, miss time from avocational activities, and, and with athletes, miss time from sport. And then the treatment becomes much different when you have a missed list frank versus a uh, acutely diagnosed ligamentous injury and that's the lowest end of the spectrum and these can often happen from a very innocuous misstep on a curb uh under the pile in an athletic competition playing football or you know they cut quickly on turf and they feel a, a pop or a strain or a sudden pain in the arch of the foot and we'll get into the exam i think probably a little later in, in this podcast but they they are litigated uh, very well for the plaintiff side. I mean, 20% of ligamentous injuries are missed, and it's the second highest reason for lawsuits against orthopedic surgeons, at least as of data within the last 10 or 15 years when they when they've searched that. So it's it's something you don't ever want to miss as as an athletic uh, as anyone from athletic trainers or medical professionals taking care of athletes uh, or or just regular persons in general. And it's sometimes very hard to diagnose. Uh, and the treatment from the, you know, old classic horse injury or the vehicular trauma we talked about down to the misstep on a curb, thinking it was a sprain, those are treated very differently too. And I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more. Oh, definitely, definitely. We have a lot to unpack here, Dr. Nardi. Great start. So just to kind of recap here, it sounds like we've got, you know, the past history of like, hey, this is more of a horseback riding injury to now we've got kind of two buckets to think about with the Liz Frank. We've got traumatic injuries that happen very quick, very acutely, like you've mentioned, like a motor vehicle accident. And then we have the sporting injuries, whether that be football or I've even uh, heard of and seen a few cases where, um, you know, individuals in the military were parachuting and their parachute didn't deploy soon enough and um, they hit the ground a little quicker than expected and that quick plantar flexion hitting the ground real quick um, caused them to have a Liz Frank injury so it's one of those things that I think uh, I, I like the way you sorted it into buckets and I like the way you kind of categorize it to break it down because I think the mechanism is very important and I think this is one I, I always get people asking like what could I have done to prevent this like what should I have done differently and it's one of those things that sometimes this is one that I, I'll argue it's not always preventable. Like I can't prevent you from getting in a car accident. Like I can't magically strengthen one muscle to prevent that joint from, um, you know, being injured in a motor vehicle accident. And even on the athletic side, we can crush all the foot and ankle strengthening we can. But if you end up on the bottom of the pile in football and your foot gets twisted in a weird way, you know, that there's only a, there's a limit to what muscular strength can offer with that regard. I would say, you know, these are a spectrum of disease uh, and, and there are the two buckets, but, you know, you have everything from these strange plantar flexion, pronation, abduction movements where there's no contact to traumatic fall or, or a simple trip 
over stairs or a misstep in a pothole or a slip and fall on wet floors for a worker, you know, to the 75 mile an hour car pile up uh, or the or the person who's paired parachuting or, you know, has a fall from a height. Uh, obviously, your, your clinical suspicion is much higher in the, with a traumatic history, but anything and we, we stress test these in the OR and we stress test our repairs. And, and when you guys are working in the clinic, you know, pronation, abduction maneuvers and provoke plantar flexion and loading of the arch will often produce pain. And we're kind of getting a physical exam now. But those are the things, you know, history is key. And, and anyone with a even a subtle injury, and we're excluding one patient population, which I, I do think is noteworthy to hit on, but and we'll come back to that in just a second. But I think, you know, you really need to listen to, okay, what? what's producing this pain? How, how did it start? And, and if you have something uh, and a couple of exam findings to match, but if you have this, oh, it's a kind of weird roll of my foot. And um, if they do, then, then your suspicion needs to just elevate. And it's that plantar flex position of the foot with axial loading and pronation abduction tend to uh, produce these. Uh, the one patient population who I really worry about, and I see a lot of also outside of my sports and trauma populations are patients with neuropathy. And you always have to remember patient with neuropathy has lost that protective sensation and classically Charcot, uh, diabetic related, but it can come from any source of neuropathy, neuropathy and microtrauma, simple walking in a neuropathic unprotected patient can cre create a collapse of the list rank joints as they're loaded. And that treatment is much, much different. It's really beyond the scope of this podcast. Uh, and, therapist but but i think it is noteworthy for any clinician who sees a foot that doesn't look quite right in an unprotected neuropathic patient get them to an orthopedic surgeon who manages charcot or patients with neuropathy because that's a, that's a whole totally different beast but it does encompass the list rank joints most most commonly yeah that's an interesting point and it, it makes me think too, a lot of times in some of the past Liz Frank uh, patients with Liz Frank injuries I've seen, a lot of them were actually misdiagnosed previously with some type of neuropathy or Morton's neuroma or something like that. So um, are there any other diagnoses that you typically see get um, kind of thrown out there instead of Liz Frank, like a differential standpoint? Uh, most commonly is just the sprain that's unrecognized. And, you know, you get a normal x-ray report and people will often look at an x-ray report, not the images, and and kind of dismiss the patient. But then, and the reason these are missed most frequently is the exam wasn't the best. They didn't really hear the history that well, and they didn't look at the images. And then on top of that, through no fault, it's just the way our system is, in an emergency room or urgent care, you're getting a non-weight-bearing x-ray. And these very subtle injuries are only detected on weight-bearing and sometimes not even weight-bearing x-rays. Sometimes you need a stress x-ray where we actually pronate the foot to see the injury or an MRI or a weight-bearing CAT scan. And, and so that makes it diagnosis very difficult for clinicians. So the index of suspicion needs to be very high when you think, and, and again, it's just why I tell the resident doctors, there is no such thing as a midfoot sprain. Don't ever come out of a clinic office telling me they think they have a sprain because I'm going to work them up and, and maybe order superfluous tests if they tell me a history that that is at all concerning. They, they're having trouble putting weight on it. They had bruising under the bottom of the foot. They hurt when you stress there on examination. It's a Liz Frank tear that will likely need surgical treatment until proven otherwise in my mind. That's an interesting point on the imaging as well. So you're doing the dynamic x-ray with active movement of the foot into those positions or weight-bearing CT and the MRI combination, um, like an x-ray or CT and the MRI? Yeah. So, I mean, I obviously don't want to order unnecessary imaging, but it starts with a history. And if the resident doctors call me from the ER, I see someone in the ER or in the clinic for the first time, and or one of the trainers says, hey, this athlete you know, got felt a pop on the bottom of the pile and they, they had trouble walking off the field and they're limping and the x-rays are normal and they're non-weight-bearing x-rays, I'll start with asking the patient, can you put full weight on it? And if if they do, I'll get comparison views. If they have any plantar bruising and the comparison views are equivocal or it's very difficult to appreciate any subtle widening or pathognomonic findings for Liz Frank injury, I'll then go to a weight-bearing CAT scan 
or an MRI. And that, that just depends on the circumstance. If I, if I think there's subtle bony injury or there's maybe a non-displaced fracture that you can see on x-ray or is reported on x-ray, I'll stick more to our weight-bearing CAT scan because that's a dynamic study. You're putting load on it. If the patient's having trouble weight-bearing, I'll get an MRI just because that's a non-weight-bearing study. And it's very effective at looking at ligamentous structures. So a little bit of an algorithm involved there and a little bit of you know clinical judgment and feel. There's no algorithm for diagnosing these, which which is also why they're hard, easy to miss and hard to diagnose sometimes, especially the subtle low end of the spectrum. But but usually those are the baddest actors because they go undiagnosed and untreated for so long. And then I mean, you've probably seen patients with a missed Liz Frank come in. You miss it for a couple months, the foot can start to collapse and you get early arthritis and the arch drops and, and they can't get returned to sport or work or their avocations. And that's a big problem. And because the surgical treatment of a missed Liz Frank that's going on to collapse is a fusion, which is a big deal. We'll be talking about treatment and outcomes probably a little later. So I don't want to jump the gun too hard there. <laughs> no, for sure. For sure. And you mentioned that as, um, as you were talking that it's very easy to miss them acutely. And you mentioned how, you know, most of the AT or, you know, on-field x-rays tend to be non-weight bearing. Uh, what kind of things do you think if you're kind of in the shoes of an AT or a PT and you're seeing one of these injuries more in an acute setting, or maybe we don't have access to the imaging. Is there anything in particular that you would want assessed to really help differentiate and confirm a Liz Frank injury? I, I think honestly, from a, a, a trainer standpoint, I, I gave a lecture uh, a couple years ago in Hershey, uh, two, two PA trainers um, on this. And, you know, I think if your suspicion is at all there, get them to an orthopedic surgeon who can then get advanced studies. Uh, if they hurt in a place that is concerning, if you see any plantar bruising and any abduction, plantar flexion, load, stress is irritating on exam and um, <clears throat> the mechanism is at all close or at all suspicious, just send them to an orthopedic surgeon right away and immobilize them. And that could be a cam boot, a splint, put them on crutches, just protect them. And, and get them in right away. Uh, and, and you know, you know, maybe out of those, let's say, 50 instances where I've been sent Liz Frank sprain versus ligament rupture, I'd say that the, the clinician's suspicion, especially when it's high, is very accurate. Uh, and if the history matches, like, I would probably argue that out of about 50 patients, I've seen and ruled out only five non-ligament injuries, no fractures with imaging. The other 45 had something real. And so again, history and physical exam are critical. We teach that to our medical students. And if the history and physical uh, are at, at all uh, concerning or suggestive for Liz Frank, or even you think it's a sprain, I would I would send them to an orthopedic surgeon. And, and an athlete who can't bear weight in the sidelines with a concerning mechanism and you're not going to see bruising right away on the sideline, which makes this tough. It's going to be about two days later. And I've seen plenty of people get taped and get put back in a game with a true ligamentous injury. And that's, you know, you could be really hurting the athlete. So I, I think threshold for putting an athlete out of a game, I think that the parameters I would use would be can't bear weight after the initial injury. And they'd say they come back to you in the next quarter and say, hey, it feels a lot better with taping but you pronate and abduct that foot and they hurt right over the Liz Frank joints. I would sit them if I was on the sideline for that game. Yeah. I like that advice. And, you know, we keep coming back to similar points and these are points that I hear often from other orthopedic surgeons in the past is, you know, the subjective component of your exam can arguably make up about 80 to 90% of what you're going to do. I think a lot of times I see a lot of younger clinicians really like to hang their hat on the objective exam. But a lot of times if you sit down and actually listen to someone, what happened, how it happened, how they felt afterwards, you can really kind of cue into what it's going to be. And as you mentioned before, this is one that can be a little bit difficult objectively because there's not really like, you know, for the ACL, we have the Lockman and the pivot shift. We don't really have like a Lockman or a pivot shift test that I can think of for the Liz Frank ligament in particular. 
Um, so I like your kind of continued focus on you have to understand the injury, but you also have to understand the mechanics of the joint. And if it moves in this direction, then it's probably that. So I think that, as you've mentioned time and time again, having that firm understanding and being able to listen to the patient in front of you is essential. And it's it's amazing to me how often that gets missed in the clinical setting. Yeah. And I think it, in the back to examination, you know, you're remember anatomically that this is a complex and and which is where that spectrum of disorder comes from from a sim simple ligamentous tear to frank dislocation of five joints across the foot or the list frank articulations and when you pronate abduct stress and axial load those with exam it might just be a simple ligamentous injury or on exam you might feel gross instability across the foot as it's dislocated you know in a motor vehicle collision you know who has open injuries, broken femurs, collapsed lungs. And, and, you know, everyone's looking at the foot going, yeah, it's not open. It looks a little swollen. You know, we'll get to that in our, on our tertiary survey is another re another way these get missed is because there's all these other life threatening injuries and no one bothers to think about the history, right? This was, you know, this, pa this patient was driving a car and, and decelerated very rapidly, sustaining all these other life threatening injuries but they don't examine the foot and they don't think about the history. And you're right, about 80 to 90% of our uh, an appropriate diagnosis comes from listening to what the patient's telling you. Uh, and, and examination is really across the whole joint. So it's very difficult to isolate. Is this, is this a bony and ligamentous list, Frank? Is this a dislocation list, Frank? Is this a pure ligamentous list, Frank? And, and that's where your imaging comes in and, and you don't have that on the sideline, you know? And uh, I think, uh, and you don't have, have that necessarily in, in the clinic or in the training room either. And so that, that I think that's why it's important to get, get that person to a specialist early. If, if you see anything at all, or hear anything at all, that's concerning. Definitely. And as you mentioned before, the longer this becomes a chronic issue, like say it happened five, seven, 10 years ago for someone, the initial injury and it got missed, the more difficult it can be to diagnose. Uh, hypothetically speaking, you know, what, how do you kind of change your examination approach, if at all, when you have someone who's gone five, 10 years since initial injury, uh, maybe they get the MRI and it shows, hey, you know, ligament intact, you know, nothing to worry about, that sort of thing. Um, how do you kind of change your exam approach when you suspect an injury there that's just gone a long time without, you know, being recognized? Or, you know, maybe you're starting to see like a compensatory pattern develop uh, in relation to a longstanding injury, um, you know, what would that compensatory pattern be? Yeah, for, first is uh, like any good physical exam inspection. So take off both your shoes and socks and stand for me. And I look at their alignment of the hind foot, ankle, knees, hips, up to the spine. And I'm pretty neurotic about that. Uh, but it all does start with a good foundation. If you, if you have them take off both shoes and socks and say, yeah, I had this sprain hiking in the woods five years ago. It was swollen and bruised for a month. Then it got better. And I limped for six months or a year. And the right foot is collapsed and abducted and there's no arch. And I can't put my index finger underneath their arch. And I can on the other side. Well, I know here, here's a problem before I even look at the x-rays. And then you start to add some other provocative examination maneuvers. You know, again, axial loading. Can you stand on, on your toes? Um, I assess, you know, anytime you have a flat foot in the office before you look at the x-rays, you want to assess the motion of the ankle, the hind foot, and the midfoot. And if the hind foot is supple and the ankle is supple uh, and have excellent normal range of motion, and then you come to the midfoot and it's pronated and abducted and stiff, I would expect to see arthritis with collapse, poor alignment on the x-rays, and you'd know right away that this flat foot isn't standard flat foot from posterior tibial tendon insufficiency or collapse of the hind foot, but rather this is a flat foot that's actually coming from a missed list frame. And I, I, I probably get two or three of those a year, uh, surprisingly. And um, so I think inspection and alignment as you get into the later missed stages is important, but all those provocative maneuvers we've been talking about where you're assessing the and stressing the midfoot on exam, the midfoot is, is supposed to be a pretty rigid area. And so if you feel a lot of play in the midfoot, things like hypermobility come to mind, um, you know, or, or excessive laxity or excessive mobility of those joints. Um, and then, you know, if you, if you feel large spurs, you know, and, and crepitus when you're grinding or we call piano keen or shifting the meta, grab the metatarsal and lift it up and down and 
if that produces pain and you can palpate bone spurs, you can say, okay, this patient has arthritis now, you know, and that, that leads you down a different treatment algorithm. Uh, and that, that's, those are all things I'm looking for um, kind of late in the, in the disease process. And obviously you do your manual muscle testing and, and things of that nature, uh, testing all of the uh, force couples around the foot and ankle, you know, posterior tibialis tendon, perineal musculature, tibialis anterior, the gastroc, the Achilles. Those are all important in gait. Um, but really the arch, the arch is in a, an inherently stable structure uh, in most human morphology on its own. It's only when it's disrupted, it becomes a problem. Yeah, that's interesting. On the force couple side for a quick second, do you tend to see any particular pattern in some of these longstanding Liz Frank injuries, like uh, imbalance between dorsiflexion, plantar flexion, or a little bit more bias towards eversion versus inversion strength or anything of that sort? Well, you know, if, again, the, you know, post-tib inserts on the navicular, perineus brevis inserts on the base of the fifth. And so as you start to abduct, perineals become contracted, post-tib will become lengthened, but those joints are really moving the hind foot and the hind tarsal joints. They're not moving necessarily the Liz Frank. Liz Frank joints move a few degrees up to 10 or 15 on the first, right? And I mean, there's variation there and that's all normal among the population. But as you start to collapse and, and uh, pronate and abduct as it, as the arch fails, uh, you'll see some, some of those mechanisms and then the gastroc can get tight. Uh, but but at this point, if you see a patient with those things happening, you know, the horse is way out of the barn and and they're going to need surgical realignment or a very rigid brace to manage that. So, Dr. Nardi, we've talked a little bit about examination considerations and differential for Liz Frank injuries. What do you as a surgeon do in order to repair the ligament? Do you go about with like a fixation approach or, you know, I know you've done some suture button work in the past. Walk me through kind of the surgical management of a Liz Frank injury. Yeah, that's a really good question, Dan. So these, um, and I just, just got done lecturing our residents this morning on Liz Frank injuries. And, and like we spoke earlier, they are absolutely a spectrum of disease. And so the, Subtle ligamentous Liz Frank injury uh, requires different fixation than the polytrauma dislocation that's open in a, in a car wreck. And the, the treatment options really do span everything from flexible fixation to fusion. And there is, in most instances, a right patient for each treatment. And so my sort of like general algorithm is if you have a ligamentous, pure ligamentous injury that involves uh, just Liz Frank's ligament and maybe the intercuneiforms in an athlete that's trying to avoid a second surgery, especially an athlete that, let's say, is is doing maneuvers with the foot and ankle that require motion because the midfoot joints don't move a ton, but in a dancer or in a jumping athlete or a cutting athlete, those few degrees might might be very important, right? And so that would be a great great indication for uh, a repair with a suture button or like a internal brace device. Um, but, but if you have any bony instability, fractures or compromise of the bony architecture, that device will be insufficient. Uh, cannulated or solid screws in the setting of a trauma when there is bony stability, but but severe ligamentous disruption across multiple columns of the foot. I prefer screw fixation. And then if I see any comminution, uh, I will convert to what's called bridge plating, where, where the hardware is placed, the joints are spanned, you restore the articular congruity of the joint, but then you have to plan to remove those plates later. <clears throat> and I typically will wait, uh, as a rule of thumb, about four to six months to remove them. If that coincides with the athlete's recovery period or a season, I wait till the season's over until it's appropriate. So if it's, and then same is true for workers, right? If you have an injured worker, you want to get them back so they can, they can hold their job. I'll often tell them, hey, we can leave this hardware in and it can be removed at any time. And, and we do it when you have a good time. Maybe you need to accrue some more, you know, time off work hours or sick leave before we take it out. Or like the athlete, let's say they get injured in the fall. Spring season's coming up. They're just starting to get back. You know, they've been through therapy. They're working with you, get their muscle strength back. Their range of motion's good. You don't want to take them 
and take them back to the OR, even if it's a simple hardware removal, because that's still a couple of weeks of downtime. You know, it's not not eight to 12 weeks of recovery, but it might be, you've seen patients where the hardware is removed and it's a good two to four weeks till the skin's ready, they're losing muscle mass. So it's important, it's important to understand what their occupation or what their athletic level is, what sport or season they're in, what, what their job demands are, because it does affect my choice of fixation. And then the injury pattern itself do, does also affect. And there's a lot of good research and literature to support primary fusion in some of these injuries. And, and the ideal patient for that is someone who's, you know, in their forties like me, who, uh, you know, wants pain relief and wants a stable arch. And, and I mean, I, I, I don't go on point. I don't dance on point. I, I don't do, extensive yoga maneuvers. I stand in an OR for 10 to 12 hours, twice a week. I ride a bike and do some light jogging and a primary arthrodesis would be perfect for me because you don't have to take out the hardware as a second surgery. So you can see there, there's, there's a lot of different treatment options for those patients. The last important thing to note is, you know, if you miss this injury and they do go on to collapse and they develop arthritis, the treatment for that is actually a, a very extensive surgery. It usually involves taking a, a wedge of bone to reconstruct the arch and then fusing well beyond just the Liz Frank joints, that stiffens the foot substantially. And, you know, if it's a 60 or 70 year old with arthritis, that's one thing they tolerate that well. But if it's a 30 or 40 year old with that scenario, I mean, that's, that's bad news. And, and you, you're, you're going to be stiffening them, them a fair amount. And so that's, that's often a tough pill to swallow, which is why not missing these injuries, like we talked about earlier, is, is probably the most important thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I love how you broke that down into various fixation approaches. And ultimately, it sounds like it comes back to what's best for the patient in front of you based on how they were injured and how they need to or what level of function they need to get back to. Uh, I got to ask, when you were talking about the various types of like more of a flexible fixation. Are you doing more of a single tightrope or dual tightrope or what does that fixation technique look like for you on the flexible ones? Yeah. So um, we actually looked at this in our biomechanics lab. Um, and so uh, if you have a pure ligamentous disruption between the medial cuneiform and second metatarsal base, uh, if you add fixation or the supplemental limb, across the intercuneiforms, same is true for screw fixation as well. You afford the construct significant stability than a single limb. So the results of our uh, biomechanics studies, we did two looking at single versus double, just in flexible fixation. And we compared this to screw fixation as well. So I'm a big advocate for, um, if you're gonna stabilize a ligamentous Liz Frank injury, it's gonna be two screws, or two limbs of your flexible fixation, regardless. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. And do you ever employ something more along the lines of like internal bracing with like a swivel lock anchor, a comparable anchor? Yeah. So uh, there's there's two ways to do flexible fixation. That there's a suture button that ends up on the the top outside part of the second metatarsal, and then that traverses the suture tape traverses the Liz Frank articulation, and then that that can either go to a a uh, swivel lock anchor or a uh, button tightrope. Uh, and then that supplemental limb comes over the top of the intercuneiforms and is usually fixated into the middle cuneiform with a suture anchor. So there's tape in it. If you need pictures for reference, there's one in our article, but these tapes are centrally placed across the list, Frank, and then the tape goes dorsal uh, underneath all the critical structures of the foot, but subperiosteally into the middle cuneiform. And that provides a, a significant amount of, of stability for the construct. If you're doing two screws, they're placed centrally across the articulations. How do you go about, obviously, with the flexible fixation, it's a balance of how tight versus, like, how much stability we add versus how much mobility al you allow. Is there anything that you kind of find to kind of assess yourself surgically how tight to make things? That's a great question. So if you think of the anatomy of the arch, uh, the second metatarsal sits recessed, and and there is not a ton of our, of motion at the second. Most of the motions at the first TMT. So um, you leave that free in this construct, and so I, I tend to make this as tight as I can, uh, and, and I I make sure my assistant, while I'm placing fixation, is placing that on maximum tension. I use a 
fracture clamp to hold the bony anatomy perfectly reduced while I'm applying the fixation. And then after the fixation is secured, I remove the clamp and then stress the foot to make sure there's no gapping or widening. I do it same same technique, whether it's screws or flexible. The the real difference from a surgeon standpoint is just um are, are you are you comfortable uh with flexible fixation uh or or have you trained on screws and the screws work and that's worked in your hands the advantage for me of flexible fixation is out of all the ones i've placed i have yet to have to remove one and so i avoid a second surgery it's also important to note that there's been a lot of literature looking at this people with ligamentous Liz Frank injuries and bony Liz Frank injuries even though the ones that are perfectly reduced, whether you use plates, screws, buttons, internal brace device, 40% of them down the road will have arthritis on x-ray. Maybe not symptomatic, but they're going to have arthritis. So you always got to prep the patient with, look, this is a bad injury. You're going to get back to sport. We wrote a paper on that in Division One athletes. They're going to get back, but it's not going to be 100%. But you are going to be able to play at the level you were. You're going to get back to work, which is great. But down the road, you're going to have arthritis and you might need you know, injections, you might need a brace, but if you don't treat that injury, you're going to go to arthritis fast and you're going to be looking at that big, bad surgery we just talked about. So I do believe, you know, there are a lot of the nihilists would say, why don't you just primarily fuse everyone? That's what I do. It works well. Sure. But then you're, you're compromising range of motion for that period of time. And then with the fusion, you'll see it adjacent segment arthritis at other joints down the road too. So I don't think that primarily fusing everyone is the right answer for a ligamentous Liz Frank injury. I, I do believe the athlete or the active worker or person persons who need mobility and want to avoid a second surgery, that's the patient I love flexible fixation for, where it's an isolated injury at the Liz Frank articulation. The yeah. traumas are a little bit more tricky because there's often an injury at each tarsal and tarsal joint and, and the flexible fixation or isolated screws, it, it's not enough. Those are usually doomed to fail. And that's where you usually have to add bridge plates, screws, K-wires, all sorts of things in, in your toolbox to to manage those. And again, it's along that spectrum we talked about. But but in my mind, the perfect person for flexible fixation is that isolated ligamentous Liz Frank injury who who doesn't want a second surgery, who, who does need motion, who's young, who is okay with the fact that there's a 4 in 10 chance they're going to get arthritis down the road, but they, they want to return to sport and not have to take a break to take out the hardware. I think that's the ideal person. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I love the focus on the long-term outcome and implications as well. And, you know, ultimately, I think you kind of alluded to it. The joint preservation approach here is uh, fixing the ligamentous injury, restoring stability. Um, it's just a matter of how you do that. And I would, I'd like to make the argument that if you don't go about restoring that surgically, as you mentioned before, um, that's going to lead to a more likely chance of the arthritic formation, not just at that joint, but at the surrounding joints. And as you mentioned earlier, it's going to be so much more invasive surgically to try and correct that. And you're going to have to do a whole lot more from a surgical standpoint too. What are your incisions looking like in the foot? You know, is this a four or five incision thing? Is it completely arthroscopic Are most of your suture buttons like two, three incisions? What can people expect from these? There really isn't a safe way to do it arthroscopically. Um, there are, if you catch a patient very early, you can, there is a role for percutaneous fixation of screws uh, or suture button devices. In reality, most of these patients are pretty swollen and they don't get in to surgery for a few weeks. And by that time, you've already had scar formation, hematoma. Sometimes the ligament is interposed and prevents your reduction. So I, I make a formal incision about four or five centimeters in the top of the foot, uh, which allows me access, direct access and visualization to those joints. I make sure it's anatomically reduced. Two small incisions on the top outside part of the second and one right over the medial cuneiform. And I do that just to protect. There's a lot of critical structures. And I, I've seen everything from position screws, which are uh, encroaching on tibialis anterior to incarcerated subcutaneous nerves, neurovascular bundles right there. So I think if I think while the open incision isn't cosmetically desirable, it's a few centimeters in the top of the foot, that area is sometimes slow to heal. I think it's the, the best chance to protect the patient, get a great reduction, and ensure you're gonna have a good outcome. And, and I explain that to patients uh, that you know we you don't want to be blind in this area. Uh, that's how trouble happens. And you want a perfect reduction. And for me, that's usually 
you know, ligamentous Liz Frank injury is centered incision right over the uh, interval. If you have multiple joints injured, uh, dual incisions on the top of the foot is preferred. And sometimes if it's a bad medial column injury, you want to put your hardware actually on the tension side of the foot, which is the plantar side, which is where all the bad stuff is. And so you can sneak through a medial incision, or if you're doing that large osteotomy or bone cut to realign a missless, Frank, you, you can make actually quite, quite nice. You have good soft tissue coverage with the abductor halysis muscle. If you come medially and sneak underneath, you can put your plate and screws actually on the plantar side, which is biomechanically the best. Um, but that's usually for, for secondary reconstructive ones. Uh, most surgeons will use either a single incision or dual incision on the top of the foot, depending on what they need, the work they need to do. Again, just in line with the spectrum that depends on the injury and, and what you need to treat. But if we're going back to like the ligaments, Liz Frank injury, it's usually a couple centimeter incision right over the zone injury, and then two small incisions where that allow us to safely place the hardware. From a rehab standpoint, because it's it's great that we can do so much surgically to get these individuals back to where they want to be. However, it's a progression back. And unfortunately, you don't go right from the operating table back to high level sport overnight. And I think that, you know, a long term progression with a individual who's worked with these type of injuries in the past from a PT standpoint is essential. What kind of things do you look for yourself from a physical therapist who's working with one of your post-op Liz Frank injuries? And what is that typical timeline or criterion that you like to use for progression? Yeah, again, it depends on the, the nature of the injury, but but I'll start with the athletic, uh, more athletic ligamentous injuries first. Um, so everyone goes into a splint or a boot uh, right after surgery, depending on the amount of swelling. Uh, and that protects the wound. And I don't let patients do anything until the wounds heal. That's my first big hurdle. And that's usually two weeks. So two weeks of elevation. If, you know, I often have them do some leg exercises to keep the quad strong. And I make them 20 pounds, 30 pounds, foot flat, touchdown weight bearing. And then at two weeks, if their wound is nicely healed, depending on the Injury pattern, again, let's stick with ligamentous Liz Frank injuries. Our biomechanical study, we loaded our cadavers to a couple thousand newtons. And so it's actually safe. Uh, and there's no healing in a cadaver, right? And these things held up for several thousands of cycles. So I get patients actually pretty early into uh, either a pool on the um, Alter-G treadmill. I love the Alter-G at the lowest weight they can to begin walking. I do calf strengthening, range of motion, make sure their Achilles doesn't get tight. And they're ending up with an Aquinas contracture. So those are the big things. And then swelling control uh, for the first couple of weeks. And then they progress their weight bearing. I do these things. My mentor taught me called deep knee bends, where I have them hold the counter and squat down with the heel flat to 90 degrees. Keeps the quad strong, activates the glutes, all those other things. I really like to move people in a protected manner fast. Uh, athletes will also have blood flow restriction, aqua therapy. All those things are great because I think and, and a lot of literature and a lot of different disease processes for everything from ACLs to Achilles. I mean, look at Aaron Rodgers, right? The, you know, if we have, have good fixation, which we've had for years, uh, you know, the old wisdom was protected until the ligament fully heals. But but then you're left with a very atrophied leg and your bone density goes down. You get disuse osteopenia like an astronaut in outer space. And I found that if you protect them the first four weeks, uh, well, I guess first six weeks technically, but you encourage early weight bearing in a protected manner in a controlled environment with a therapist. And that's where therapy comes in huge. That when you take your first six week x-ray, you see less disuse osteopenia. They take the, the splinter cam boot off. They have more leg calf musculature. And, and I'm sure you could attest to this, that the, the sooner you get your muscle mass back, things like swelling and stiffness, if you, if you keep those under control early, the patient returns to work sooner. And interestingly, we studied return to work after flexible fixation and compared it to historical published literature for open reductional fixation with plates and screws and stuff. And we were able to get people back faster with an early accelerated protocol because both our screw limb and our internal brace uh, flexible fixation limb held up under biomechanical loading, meaning no matter what you choose for fixation, you can probably get away with early functional rehab and Liz Frank injuries too. And probably should, we probably should be doing it. We had people back about a month to six weeks sooner, both for return to play and return to work uh, than, than previously published results. So I'm, I'm a big advocate of that stuff from rehab. 
definitely. I love those concepts. I love the approach of early intervention and ultimately, you know, recalling or remembering some of the biomechanics that we talked about earlier, right? Like avoiding positions that are going to really stress the heck out of that Liz Frank joint that was just reconstructed, right? Like we're not going in day one and doing super crazy extreme single leg, anti-pronation, anti-supination, balance control, that sort of thing. It's low and slow, but as you mentioned, really emphasizing some of those basic things early on. Um, I can't emphasize the point about the BFR enough. Um, I try to get those on everyone as soon as I can. Um, you know, sometimes if, depending on the surgery, um, I see a lot of knees. Some of those knees have three, four hour tourniquet time and people can't tolerate it day one, day two. But once we can tolerate that, I can assure you that that is one of the few things I believe is a true game changer. Even if it's just passive BFR, the benefits are very well documented at this point, in my opinion. So I can certainly attest to that. Um, and I'll say too, I think the Alter G treadmill is a great tool if you have it, but a lot of outpatient clinics don't have 50, 60 grand or more to spend on one of those. So is I can take a band, loop it over a rack or a doorway, have people pull down and maybe it's a hundred pound band. So I'm effectively off weighting a hundred pounds. And I can slowly progress that down over time. Um, I like that for Achilles trying to get initial heel raises, and I can certainly see a, a point for that with the lace frank injury as well early on if you're trying to unload or de-weight a little bit. Otherwise, as far as long-term considerations uh, for rehab here, Dr. Anardi, what's your typical return to sport timeline look like? And do you have any criteria you'd like people to display in order to return to sport? Any strength metrics or outcome measure scores or that sort of thing? Yeah, I'm a big fan of symmetry uh, at the calf. I mean, it's just an objective measurement, not as concerned with equal range of motion, just because that uh, that operative side is always a little stiffer. Uh, but I think if you can get their calf musculature and their balance and proprioception as close to equal as possible, uh, and I usually right around the 12-week mark is when, especially someone who's been at it early, sometimes as early as eight to 10 weeks, I still, though, ligament takes 12 weeks to heal. So I, I really hold them back with cutting, jumping, sprinting until about 12 weeks. If you have them strong and they're calf muscles and you're doing blood flow restriction, alter G and uh, all that other stuff, and, and you're getting you know, hypertrophic muscle growth early, when you let them kind of crack the whip at 12 weeks, it might take them a month to get back. So I usually say between four and six months for an athlete. Sometimes I'll let them start doing drills a little bit early eight to 10 weeks, but that's rare. They got to show me that they can run and jog on a treadmill first before. And I have a few, I had a, I had a woman who was a Kentucky gymnast and she was like able to do a single leg raise at like six weeks. And I was like, oh my gosh, let me look at your x-rays. And they were okay. And she was doing uneven bar stuff with her boot on. And, and she was like really pushing herself, which was a little bit beyond what I had given her restriction wise, but that's an exception. Well, I think if you look at like return to play for most athletes, uh, it's usually the following year that their stats are about the same, at least the paper we looked at. So I tell them you might be able to return to play between four and six months. It's probably going to be nine to 12 till you're back to your normal self or close to it. And you might not ever get quite all the way to normal. I usually tell them with these kind of injuries, this is about 90 to 95% of normal. Awesome. I like that timeline. I like some of those criteria and I can't emphasize your point enough about the symmetry both from a circumference standpoint and a strength standpoint. Um, I think at this point, anyone working with athletes needs to have some kind of way or means to measure uh, strength um, or force output through the calf, whether that's some kind of force plate metric or some type of Tindec or dynamometer setup. I think that having those objective numbers further supports uh, your return to sport decision-making. And I found that, you know, sometimes people look strong, but when you get those numbers run, they're a lot weaker than you actually think. So I think having that objective data to support it is essential. Dr. Nardi, I feel like you and I could probably talk about Liz Frank injuries until we're blue in the face. We've covered a lot of ground from an examination, evaluation, surgical approach, and even some rehab considerations today. Is there any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks or anything you want to add that we might have missed? I just think reiterating um, to the patient that these, you know, these these are traumatic injuries. And just like any trauma, um, you know, it, it does alter you. Uh, and the recovery 
road is long. There are good treatment options, but I think from any medical provider treating these patients, it's important to put put things in perspective uh, with the nature of the injury. And, you know, 100, 200 years ago, amputation was still the preferred treatment. And we've come a long way from that. But it, but I think a lot of times the athlete's expectation is totally normal or, oh, I'm going to be just like Aaron Rodgers and back out there in eight weeks. And these are bad actors. And I stress that over and over and over again. And even when you have a good outcome, the risk of arthritis is very real. And, I, and I'm very upfront and I tell patients, look, I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer, but this is the, these are the facts and you got to know it. And if you're doing great and you return to play, perfect. But I think if you, if you talk to patients and counsel them ahead of time, you know, a lot do well, but, but some won't, even when you give them your best effort and they have a great therapist and you do a great surgery, they're never quite the same. And it's important to stress that up front. And, and then that these represent a spectrum of disease. So your friend might have had a ligamentous Liz Frank that got flexible fixation. And you might have a horrible bony injury and might require plates and screws and primary fusion. And, it, and it's just because there's, there's the, you know, one word doesn't encompass all of the spectrum of this disease. So I think it's in counseling with these patients. They, I spent a lot of time in the clinic ahead of surgery, right when they have the injury diagnosed, explaining that to them. I think it's important. And for therapists too, you know, to just reinforce that, I think is helpful. Um, so yeah, that would be about, that's, I think that's a nice summary of Liz Frank injuries. Definitely. I completely agree with every, everything you said, Dr. Nardi. For people who want to find out more about you or keep up to date with your research work, or maybe they've got one of these injuries themselves and they want to seek you out, where can they find you at? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> we have uh, online. Penn State has like our research portals and stuff published if you just google uh search our name a lot of that will come up uh and a link actually i believe there's actually an email on there and then there's also a link to our like clinical uh site where you can make an appointment the number for the office is on there and can reach out i get i get email a couple emails a day from people all over the place about questions and cases and stuff and obviously i know not everyone can travel to central pennsylvania but um uh, we, we do a pretty good job of responding to those and and seeing patients uh, if they need another opinion. So happy to help with that. Definitely. We'll link to all of that in the description below. So that way, if you need anything along those lines or you want to check out Dr. Arnardi's research more, you can do so there. Really appreciate your time, Dr. Arnardi. Thanks for everything. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Dan. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.